Right now, many companies are rethinking how they connect with their customers online. This makes the role of developers who build these digital experiences more important than ever. But a lot of business leaders don't know how to unlock their dev team's full potential. In Ask Your Developer, Twilio CEO Jeff Lawson shows you how. To get your copy of the book, head to askyourdeveloper.com. Coming up today, we chart the rise and fall of Football Index and explain what the hell is going on with non-fungible tokens. You're listening to the YGK Podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Natasha Bernal. Hello. And Amit Katwala. Hello. This was the week when Google announced a new Nest Hub that uses radar scanning technology to track your movements, coughs and snores while you sleep to generate personalised sleep tracking reports. It wasn't immediately clear if the device would be able to differentiate between people sleeping and people having sex. Uber decided to recognise its UK drivers as workers this week, guaranteeing them a minimum hourly wage, holiday pay and pensions, weeks after a landmark Supreme Court ruling. It's a dramatic U-turn from insisting that its drivers are independent, self-employed partners, not entitled to basic rights enjoyed by employees. And finally, this was the week when the European Union revealed its plans for a vaccine passport. The digital travel certificate will enable anyone who has been immunised against COVID-19 to travel between all 27 EU countries from as early as this summer. Is anyone planning uh, a great escape summer no. holiday to to Europe? No? We're all going to be in sort of damp caravans somewhere in the English countryside, right? Not even that, really. I gave up in January. As soon as Boris Johnson came on and was like, there'll be a third lockdown, I was like, that's it. 2021 is over. <laughs> Cancel it. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. My, my ambitions stop and start with going to see some friends about an hour away from, from my house. Um, that's it. I'll take it if I can do it. Please do leave us a nice review or rating on your podcast platform of choice. Recent reviews have described the YGK podcast as good and half-baked. If you'd like to describe us as great and fully baked, please do leave a review. It would mean a lot and also push down reviews that accuse us of being half-baked. What did we learn this week? Amit, let's start with you. Yeah, I learned why humans have a much bigger white area around their eyeball than most other animal species. So in most animals, the sclera, which is a bit of our eye around the iris, um, is dark in colour with only a little bit of white showing when the eyes open. But in humans and in some gorillas, there's much more white visible around the iris. Um, and this is thought to be because, so for animals, dark sclera offers an evolutionary advantage because the flashing white of their eyes won't give them away in a sort of predator-prey situation. But for humans, that white ring around your eye iris makes it much easier to see where you're looking so we can build stronger bonds. And this is called the cooperative eye hypothesis. So is that why when I look at a horse, I feel a bit spooked? Yeah, you can't tell what the horse is thinking. That's it, yeah. Exactly. Like, you it's don't know what's going cows. on with that horse's head. That horse could be planning to eat you for all you know, and you wouldn't wouldn't know. They're, just, they're very big, and you can't tell what they're thinking exactly until until they eat you, which seems unlikely but could happen. 
Natasha, what did you learn this week? I also have an animal fact. So um, this week I learned that Asia's longest missing bird came out of hiding this month, solving one of the great enigmas of Indonesian ornithology. So this this bird is called the Indonesian black-browed babbler, which is very hard to say three times fast, and it vanished for 170 years. It's very small, it's brown-blue, and it's very cute. There's like a picture on the news stories about it, really, really cute. But the elusive bird wasn't actually properly in hiding or extinct. The error was mainly that we didn't know where to find it, so ornithologists thought that it lived in Java, whereas in fact they were in Borneo. So just goes to show, seeking you shall find your bird of choice. This is the, the Wired UK podcast, your weekly guide to tech and just random animal facts most <laughs> weeks, it turns out, which I am 100% here for. Now, our first story this week isn't about animals at all. It's about the beautiful game, football, and specifically football index. Let's start right at the beginning, Amit. What was Football Index and why are we talking about it? Yeah, so Football uh, Index was a... Oh, I was just about to explain what football is, which is probably unnecessary. Football Index was a betting platform, essentially, that presented itself as a fantasy league stock exchange. So users were encouraged to turn their knowledge into cash. You could buy shares in specific players, and then when they performed well in real life, you got paid out dividends. And it was kind of presented as a market, so the share prices of like Lionel Messi could go up or down depending on how many people... We're trying to buy shares in him, um, and it was it was basically a form of stock stock exchange for football. Essentially, is, is how it was presented. Now, lots of users invest, invested thousands of pounds in these. Some made some really serious returns. You could, you know, just like in the real stock market, you could make a lot of money and you could lose a lot of money. Um, but last week, via a blunt announcement on its website, the company announced that it was slash, slashing the dividends that it paid out for footballers having good performances, and. Predictably, this led to chaos. You know, part of the reason that people had invested their money because they thought they were getting a certain return. But when that was suddenly turned off, everyone tried to sell their shares. The value of these players kind of plummeted. And then on Saturday, Football Index, the site announced it was going into administration. So scores of people have been left in financial ruin. We've seen a lot of stories this week about some people who've lost their entire life savings on this app. This was a, a, a stock market crash, basically, in a fake stock market, a fake economy that was sort of a, a gambling platform dressed up as something else. It's, it's worth noting that this is a very, very UK story. So if you're listening elsewhere in the world, particularly in the United States, here in the UK, you can gamble on just about anything. You name it, you can gamble on it. And watching sport in the UK, both going to the stadiums when that wasn't illegal and watching it on TV or listening to it on the radio, commercial radio anyway, you are inundated with adverts for different gambling apps and services. And a lot of it feels a bit like a video game. And Football Index was the most video gamey example of this yet. Right, Emmett? Yeah, that's right. It's it's so divorced from the idea of you are placing a bet on a sporting event. You know, it's it traditionally you would walk into um a bookmaker's and, you know, put five pounds on a horse to win the Grand National. But this was very different. It was presented as something like, you know, you are investing, you've got hidden knowledge and you're investing it in a particular uh, team or, you know, a particular player you think is going to do well. And it was very, 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 they did, they worked very hard in their advertising to try and present it as something to do with like knowledge and investment rather than something to do with gambling and luck. 
And it's a failure of regulation. It sounds kind of boring, but that's what's happened here. It's a gambling platform that's been allowed to dress itself up and market it itself as a game of skill. And all of the seediness, if you like, of high street betting shops has been stripped away. And it's not just Football Index that has successfully done this. There are lots and lots of gambling apps that make it seem like there's a game of skill to be played here, when in reality, particularly with Football Index, the skill would be knowing how it attributes value in the market. And nobody but Football Index knew that. And when it ripped all the liquidity out of the market, as you said, Amit, many people lost huge sums of money. But this isn't a problem limited to Football Index, and it isn't even a problem limited to the last couple of years. This can be traced right back across a number of decades and some key legislative decisions which were taken in the UK to allow these sort of services to exist. Yeah, that's right. So our staff writer, Will, wrote about this for the website this week. Uh, It's a really good piece. You should check it out. But he kind of traced the development and how the UK gambling legislation has changed and kind of, you know, over the years to permit this kind of environment. So it started more than 50 years ago in the passing of the 1968 Gambling Act, which sort of began this slow transformation from of Britain from a country where gambling was quite restricted into the basic free-for-all that we have now. The next big moment after that came in 1994, um, slightly incongruously with the introduction of the National Lottery. So the National Lottery doesn't seem like it would have opened the floodgates for you know gambling in and of itself. But what happened was because the lottery was allowed to advertise on television, other you know, providers of similar products, you know, football pools or bingo operators were kind of saying, well, you know, they're allowed to advertise and our form of gambling is no worse than yours. So why can't we advertise? And then a really critical moment came in 2005 when uh, the Labour government passed the UK Gambling Act, which deregulated gambling uh, on a a kind of huge scale. So um, until that act came into force, television and radio advertising for casinos, betting shops and online gambling sites was banned. After that, one study shows that between 2007, when the act came into force, and 2013, spending on, spending on gambling advertising increased by 600%. And what we've seen over the last decade, well, since 2007, really, what we've seen is this advertising has basically taken over football. Uh, it's transformed placing a bet from a, you know something that a few people might participate in to something that's become a ritual, you know, as standard as all the other pre-game rituals that sports fans kind of enjoy, like getting a pint before the game or whatever. And... Um, you know, it's it's this kind of link between football and gambling that's allowed companies like Football Index to really thrive. And you can see that in the way that the advertising is created. A lot of the adverts that we see on TV, even now during lockdown, involve groups of young men going to the pub, drinking, having fun, placing bets. It's part of that match day ritual, which a lot of football fans are very, very keen to get back to. And something weird has also gone on through lockdown, right? So we've got players playing in empty stadiums and the fans are replaced by huge advertising banners. Um, And removing that ritual from going to see football in the pub or in a stadium or having friends around to your house to watch it, stripping away all of those elements kind of leaves only one thing for a lot of people. and, And that's, well, the football itself. But gambling as well and something that will picked out in his piece was the difference between discontinuous and continuous gambling and that's something that platforms like football index have really really enabled yeah that's right you know it's you know we kind of alluded to the fact earlier that before if you wanted to place a bet you had to physically go to a shop and you know hand over some money and write down your bet and do all that thing but with the advent of smartphones and the internet 
you know, the, the betting is in your pocket the entire time. It's right there. It's available for you. And with something like Football Index, it doesn't even need to be a game on. You know what I mean? Like a player's value can rise and fall on the basis of news reports or, you know, things that have nothing to do with the actual football underlying it. So, you know, you can be checking it at three o'clock in the morning and there might be movement. Whereas at least when you're just betting on a, an actual sporting event, you know, you can only be absorbed in when the sporting event is actually physically going on. Um, and You're right, James. I think that when I think about all the things that I used to do before a football match, um, you know, if I was going to one, none of those things are available to me now apart from maybe placing a bet because lockdown stripped away everything else, all the social aspects around it. And I think that's left a lot of people betting more. Um, although we spoke to some researchers in this area and the stats on this are a bit unclear. Um, there's been an increased market share for online sports gambling for sure, but there's there might have been, rather than kind of drawing more people into it, there's been a kind of shift in the way people are betting. So spending shifted from horses to football over this period rather than there being a big increase in overall participation. Um the number of adults betting on sports at physical bookmakers has fallen from 7.2 to 4% overall, but online betting has increased from 3% to 7.4%. So it's the kind of similar proportion of people betting, but what we might be seeing is people betting more often or, you know, at more times a day or on a wider range of events. Um, but the overall levels of problem gambling seem to be the same. It's around half a percent, according to Mark Griffiths, who's a researcher at Nottingham. And something that's been quite strange to see in, in the early stages of lockdown is when sport ceased to exist for most of the world, the few places where it did carry on. I think the Nicaraguan Football League never shut down, so you could head on to the betting app of your choice and place an acker on the number of corners that would be conceded by a team you'd never heard of in a league you've never heard of in a country that you probably struggle to point out on a map unless your knowledge of Central America is particularly strong. So it's it's completely removing the sport from the act of gambling. And there's an element to which platforms like Football Index dress up, as we said a few times now, old-fashioned games of luck as skill as well, right? So a lot of us might fancy ourselves as football experts. Nobody could claim, outside Nicaragua perhaps, to be an expert on Nicaraguan football, yet these apps enable you to place bets on those leagues, on those sports that you have no knowledge about. Um, and and th this has some sort of relation to day trading, right? You might think of yourself as a market expert, but what's your knowledge of the market really like? What a lot of these apps are basically doing is saying that if you have knowledge, we'll make you rich. In reality, it's still a game of chance. You might as well just be throwing your life savings at a one-armed bandit. It's similar odds, dressed up differently. Yes, exactly. It's this illusion of knowledge over chance. The game is based on football, but the knowledge, knowing football doesn't help because you, if you don't know how Football Index takes that information about football and, and translates it into movement in the market or into dividends, then you know, you don't really have any knowledge about whether or not you're going to make money. Um, in 2019, the UK Stand Advertising Standards Authority realised this basically and it upheld a complaint that Football Index was running adverts that gave the impression it was an investment opportunity when in fact it was a betting product. And I think there are real parallels with um, other platforms that, well, with what we've seen on other platforms in recent weeks. So we've seen this kind of huge spike in uh, 
Games, GameSpot trading on, sh- on on shares on Reddit, kind of driven by a lot of uh, people that are new to stock trading, kind of getting involved in this thing that they don't really understand. And there is an opportunity to make a lot of money, but they're not making money because they, you know, have better knowledge of share prices than other people. It's because they're kind of jumping on this bandwagon. And, you know, they don't really understand why the stock's going up or why the stock's going down. But there's just thousands of people kind of getting involved because they've heard that it might be a good way to make money. And I think Football Index kind of took advantage of that. We've seen something similar with online poker as well. So poker is presented as a game of skill, which it is. It is a game of skill, but it's only a game of skill if you play it at a reasonably high level. And if you don't play it at a high level, it is a game of chance. And if you look on poker sites, the game formats that they promote and the new products that they launch are all about taking out the element of skill and and ramping up the element of chance. So the the products that PokerStars has launched recently are things like, you know, super turbo tournaments or, you know, this kind of thing where the faster you play and the fewer hands you play, the much, much more elements of skill there are, sorry, of luck there are over skill. And they've launched games that like ramp up the the proportion of chance to skill uh, because they know what they're doing. And as you say, speed is a really important element in that football index and a lot of the gambling platforms similar to it want you to bet often and bet quickly, not necessarily huge sums, but with minimal thought, if you like. And that's appealing to young men in particular. So one of the people we spoke to for our story, Dara McGee, an assistant professor in the Department of Health at the University of Bath, explains that day trader hooks used by apps like Football Index are really appealing to young men as they tap into this masculine idea of wealth and authority. He says it's a glorified image, particularly for working class men. Not only do they not have access to the steady jobs that their fathers had, but the chances of a steady career are also very precarious. And here you have this image of becoming a stock market trader overnight, using your knowledge of football. He says that's deeply alluring and The final kicker, if you like, Amit, is that the football industry, the sport that many of us love, is really quite complicit in this. Yeah, you only have to watch a a game on TV and just look at the sheer number of gambling adverts that you're presented with during that process from pre-match to, you know, halftime. Sometimes you even see gambling adverts pop up on screen during a game, you know, kind of overtaking some of the, the real estate on screen on the players' shirts. You know, at least two clubs were sponsored by Football Index. They had the Football Index logo on their shirts, um, you know, in the last few years. It, there's a very symbiotic relationship between online gambling and football, particularly in the UK. And the liberalisation of gambling has really kind of gone hand in hand with the massive increase of money kind of flowing around English football. Um, and it's because you've kind of got this um, this this relationship where the gambling firms need data from football clubs in order to create markets for people to bet on so you know but in the past when you were just betting on the overall result or the end result of a game you know there wasn't much data that you needed from the club to facilitate that you just needed to know what the score had been but now you can bet on everything from the number of corners to the number of passes completed to the number of shots on target number of yellow cards gambling companies need all this data and they need it in real time and the only way can the only way they can get that data is from the clubs themselves from the leagues so they need to have you know they pay the clubs for this data. So it's this kind of symbiotic relationship where the Premier League makes money not only from advertising for gambling around it, but also from the gambling companies physically paying them for the data that they then use to create markets. So yes, it's really problematic, particularly when you consider, you know, the audience of the Premier League, which isn't just adults who are allowed to, to gamble. It's young, kid, young kids watch it. You know, you see um, replica shirts 
for a lot of teams um, have gambling adverts on them. But for kids, they're not allowed to sell those. So they have kind of non-sponsored versions of the shirts with no logos on for certain clubs. I've seen online, you know, you can buy um, a gambling logo kind of iron-on patch for your kid so that they can have the authentic shirt rather than having the kid's version, which just kind of highlights the scale of the problem. Capitalism always finds a way. Uh, Were you affected by the collapse of football index? Has the beautiful game been ruined by the gamification of gambling, particularly during lockdown? Do get in touch. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Our second story this week brings a new voice onto the Wired podcast to talk about something that all the rest of us, quite frankly, don't have a clue about, but we realise is very important. Natasha, tell us more. Yeah, so uh, Jan Volpicelli, our senior editor, is making his podcast debut uh, this week because he wrote this incredible story about something that most people will find bizarre. People are setting out to prove that you can sell almost anything online. So Jack Dorsey, who's the founder and CEO of Twitter, decided to auction off the very first tweet ever written on the social media platform, which he happened to author. He sent it on March 24th. 2006 and if you remember it read just setting up my twitter (laughs) but not written properly um now there's a bidding war for people who want to own this message it will stay on the platform it will still have dorsey's name on it so why the hell would someone want to pay 2.5 million dollars which is the highest bid right now for someone else's tweet jan well, I mean, there are there are two ways of thinking about this right so the official narrative is that you are buying something that is a collectible. So this tweet is valuable the same way, I don't know, a copy of the Declaration of Independence would be valuable or more sort of prosaically would be valuable like a trading card uh, signed by the footballer who was portrayed on the trading card. So that's, that's the official thing. You are buying an historical moment in the history of the internet. And uh, that's the first tweet ever. Uh, well, that's the sort of official narrative. Of course, uh, the way I look at this is a mix of speculation. So, of course, the way this happens is you get some kind of cryptocurrency and also a kind of uh, psychological offensive there, right? So people in crypto love to uh, deconstruct and play with the very uh, subject of value, what is valuable, uh, what we want to covet. And in this way, they are essentially saying that if enough people want to buy a tweet, Jack Dorsey's first tweet, that's something that makes it valuable. And we should all want to bid over 2.5 million to own a tweet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're definitely kind of messing with our minds a little bit. But the fact is, if you, if you buy something like the Mona Lisa, or if you could get your hands on it, the Declaration of Independence, you can, you know, hang it on your wall, frame it, put it in a cabinet, something like that. But, but Jack, Dorsey's tweet is still authored by him and it's powered on a website where anyone can see it, right? It's not a physical thing. So so if you do buy this tweet, what what actually do you end up owning? Right. So as I said, this is something that has to do with crypto, cryptocurrency, right? So you get some kind of unique piece of cryptocurrency called the NFT, which stands for non-fungible token. So as opposed to the most sort of um, notorious kind of cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. Uh, In this case, this token is 
unique. You only have one like it. Bitcoins can usually be exchanged and they're interchangeable. So you, you can have two Bitcoins, you won't notice the difference. In this case, the way this uh, NFT is minted is specific to it and makes it essentially unique. And that's why it is compared uh, to a piece of art. It's actually associated with the tweet though. It's not, it's, it doesn't contain the tweet, it only contains metadata. As you said, the tweet will remain on Twitter it might actually be deleted. So you will, stand, you will end up owning a piece of cryptocurrency with some metadata like a URL that might not, on, not longer link to the original tweet uh, with the text of the tweet and with the author, in this case, Dorsey. But it is signed by Dorsey. So at least you have that kind of uh, unique legitimacy. I mean, the only way I have heard someone describe why this makes sense at all is that in a, in, the sh in a short term, in the near future, we will all be living in the metaverse, which is this kind of virtual game world uh, where we will you know, live uh, like Sims and uh, in enjoy our lives as avatars and uh, own virtual houses. And in that case, you might use Jack Dorsey's tweet as a sort of, I don't know, as a piece of art. You hang it on the virtual walls of your virtual house and only you are the one who's authorized to hang it because you have the NFT that is guaranteed and is signed by Jack Dorsey. Of course, this is, I mean, I don't really buy this because the metaverse doesn't really exist yet. So you're just buying a tweet that might be deleted. Yeah, I mean, I know we've worked from home basically for an entire year and a lot of people have turned to gaming like Fortnite, etc. to sort of supplement their current reality and make it a bit better. It does seem like the metaverse, what you refer to as the metaverse at least, is still very theoretical though. In your piece, you were very sceptical about it as you've been right now and said that this was something that might not happen for a decade or more. Now, we know that a lot of people spend a load of money on things like armour and all sorts of weapons within games, but we don't spend... And $2.5 million, or in fact, any kind of millions on things, unless we've made a huge mistake. So I wonder, is this just a lot of rather rich, bored people who have decided to go on some sort of vanity power trip? Or, or is the metaverse where you think that someone will hang a virtual version of Jack Dorsey's tweet above their fireplace? Will that be real? Well, I mean, there is certainly a debate, uh, and I think the pandemic and our spending our lives on on, on, a, on a constant inter interacting with a screen all the time has uh, some role in it. There is a debate about the value of virtual objects, right? So you mentioned special objects in, uh, in Fortnite or in other games, uh, but there is like something, a wider debate about virtual art. Uh, and so there is a genuine debate about how to put a price on a digital artifact that is going on. And crypto might theoretically help make it easier to trade or to exchange or to put a price on that kind of um, class of objects. Uh, but as you said, of course, uh, on the other hand, the fact, the fact that it's so easy to trade and to speculate on these tokens, on these um, stand-ins for art or for tweets, make it very easy to, uh, to, to just, for, for, for cryptocurrency speculators to build up a, a buzz, like the buzz about it and to, uh, try to manipulate the value and just to have a bunch of people, including us, if we are part of the problem, talk about it all the time, which in a way will increase the buzz around it and will increase in a way also 
the value of the cryptocurrency they use to speculate on these uh, artifacts. So it's the usual crypto story. The more people talk about it, the happier people in crypto are. In this specific case, the highest bidder, or one of the highest bidders for uh, the tweet is someone called Justin Sun, who is very famous for just spending a lot of money on auctions. So he, I think he paid something like five million for a dinner with Warren Buffett. And, and that's something he really enjoyed because everybody was talking about him. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the conversation is there. It is real. Uh, I, just, I just doubt that the prices we are seeing now are prices that will be paid by anyone who wants to buy a skin on Fortnite, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, I, the, 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 it's interesting that you talk about that five million dinner because I wonder what they ate. It seems like there's some very unwise choices going on from the same, same people over and over again, investing in things that aren't necessarily the, the best things. But, um, but uh, it's not just these, these people speculating. It's not just um, the, the sort of people behind crypto that are perhaps pushing this forward, this agenda forward and creating this bubble. Because, I mean, you wrote about digitized token, sorry, digital tokenized art for Wired last month, uh, when a token associated with a digital collage of about 5,000 images um, went under the hammer at Auction House Christie's, which is a legitimate operation, that sold for $69.4 million. So if, if Dorsey's tweet also sells for millions, if this theory of you can make anything valuable if, if you want to, um, what, what else could be sold? I'm kind of wondering where, where this could go. Could we buy Donald Trump's historical tweets? What other random stuff could people buy and sell online if, if this actually proves to hold water? Okay, about Trump's tweets, uh, probably not. Uh, I mean, he might theoretically uh, ask Twitter for all his past data, print out the tweets or put them on a website and then auction them. But right now it's only possible to buy <laughs> tweets that are still on Twitter. So since, as we know, Donald Trump is not there anymore. Uh, no, that's not the case. Uh, and, but in general, you touched uh, a very interesting topic, which is the only real uh, regulation of these kind of sales is intellectual property. So right, uh, yeah, you cannot sell Donald Trump's tweet because they're not Donald Trump. Donald Trump might. Uh, what an interesting scenario could be is whether someone manages to hack into, I don't know, someone's Twitter, Twitter account and sell a tweet that is not theirs, in some way possibly even take the money. I'm not sure what the, uh, the legal response would be in that case. Uh, I'm also curious about whether someone might decide to do it as a sort of uh, psychological revenge against someone, right? So you sell a tweet that is offensive or put you, put you in a bad light. So someone else hack your account and sells a very bad tweet you tweeted 10 years ago and now it's etched on a blockchain forever. And so someone, everyone will know forever and ever that you tweeted something racist or stupid. Um, that said, what can we sell? Uh, I mean, Essentially everything, right? Uh, I think that f it's very easy to see how this could move to other kind of social networks. So I wouldn't bet against someone selling a TikTok or a dance move, or just a moment in time uh, captured on a digital support, right? On social media or somewhere else. 
Mm-hmm. But just so we don't get ahead of ourselves, it's, there are still some limitations to the kind of things people can sell. Um, like, you know, I can't sell a thought, for example. So if I said I, I thought of something last Thursday, um, it was a really good idea. Uh, Amit, do you want to buy it for $2.5 million? Uh, that That's not going to, that's not possible, right? Because it's not recorded somewhere. So if I'd written it down, sure, even if it was on a napkin a la Mike Ashley, maybe I could sell that. Or, or if it had been recorded by tech, if I'd put, made myself a voice memo then it could be an NFT. But but you can't just say, you know, I'm just going to sell whatever. That There are still some rules there, right? But you, what you're saying is that we've moved from the realm of plinths and cabinets and, you know, hanging things on walls and safes uh, for valuable items to, to having a series of basically numbers that can tell you you own something that's only available to view or here online. But but this all opens a whole realm of possibilities, doesn't it? At Wired, for example, we love sharing videos with each other, um, basically from archaeologists who have recreated what things sounded like in the past. So there was one about a mummy, which sounded something like, <laughs> and then there was like a Neanderthal who was, who was sort of like, um, which all are historical technically, but have been recorded through the means of equipment and stored online. So, so people could theoretically sell that, right, Jan? It's like sort of the same as the sound of Mars, right? We heard all these video recordings and these audio recordings of what Mars sounds like. So you could sell the fake sound of Mars, which is a moment in history, and the real sound of Mars, uh, because why Why not? Is that, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I, I wonder who owns the Neanderthal sound or the Mars sound. There is obviously an interesting intellectual property there, right? Uh, intellectual property question there. But, uh, I mean, you're totally right. Who cares? You can sell anything. You can absolutely NFT anything you wish. Uh, I think Azalea Banks uh, just recently sold an NFT purportedly linked to a sex tape that it's just an audio tape. So I suppose it just moans. Uh, just moans uh, sold as an NFT. Uh, same thing. I think last week someone burned a Banksy and then sold an NFT for it. So a an NFT associated with smoke, I guess, uh, which means, of course, if you mix like uh, funny noises with smoke, you are uh, you're very close to be able to sell farts. And actually, <laughs> I think someone has already started selling farts on on some of the NFT marketplaces. Um, I mean, farts would work perf- quite well. Of course, you have to record them, bro, uh, because otherwise you don't have a sort of digital proof that the fart exists. But they work because they're unique, right? Uh, like a piece of art. Uh, you could theoretically fraction it. There are projects to fraction the sale of NFTs. So you could own a tenth of my farts. Uh, but again, you have to record it and you have to put it somewhere. <laughs> uh, but that said, I, I think that's that's the point of it. It's partly the point of it. You, you, We have to keep in mind that there is an element of this that is certainly about crypto being crypto. And so just speculating, buying anything they can, uh, pumping anything they can, inflating anything they can, also just possibly thinking that they're buying something that will be valuable in the long run. So there is a cryptocurrency crazy element that is always always there. But there is also a sort of nihilistic operation here. I mean, Bitcoin in a way told us that money doesn't need to be backed by a state to be valuable, right? And now we are getting, uh, we're essentially expanding the mindset to many other domains. So right now, we are deciding that, I mean, nothing matters. We can value anything. We can value a 
moan, we can value a smoke, we can value a piece of digital art, which is probably fair, we can value a thought. Uh, I, I think that in a way, I would compare the kind of mindset behind the NFT craze to the GameStop uh, game of stonks, right? Well, when everybody was buying stocks that were deemed to be doomed, but who cares? We want them, so they have a value as long as we keep trading them, right? Mm, essentially, the point is, they are trying to stick a finger, to poke a finger through one kind of uh, sacred cow, which is uh, that some things are valuable because there is a sort of social trust around it. So in this case, they're trying to deconstruct that and they, and they are carrying out an act of faith and believing that anything can be valuable if you believe in it. Yeah, I mean, NFT farts are definitely the great equaliser because anyone can produce them, I guess. Every one of them is unique. Um, I don't know who would want to buy them, but um, I I'm guess... I'm <laughs> yeah. I would ask everyone, if you could sell anything as a non-fungible token, what would it be, James? Uh, I think I'd just sort of make a groan of despair in, in humanity, um, record that um and sell it as a non-fungible token i seen that there's some people who have created non-fungible tokens about hot takes written about non-fungible tokens and are selling those um so it, it, it really is it's uh meta it's a dazzling it? oh i see yeah I, I don't know if you have so sigh i'd sell a sigh which a is sigh. probably quite appropriate yeah to rival that of the mummy how about you Amit? <laughs> See, I'm, I'm sort of t torn on this because my first instinct is to dismiss this whole thing as like crypto nonsense. But actually, when you think about the things that we've decided, the physical things that we've decided that have value, like, you know, why is a diamond any more value that valuable than, you know, a piece of digital art? It's just because we've societally decided it has value. So what I would sell is the rights to every single star in the universe. Like, you know, that you get those star naming websites. I'm going to start selling NFTs for stars. There's no intellectual property issues. There's billions, trillions of them. So you'd never run out. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to be the world's richest man in uh, 18 months, but it'll all be in Dogecoin. Yeah, if no one from listening to the podcast steals your idea first <laughs> and does it, I'm sure. How about you, Jan? Well, that's the point, I think. I mean, scarcity is important there. So uh, I wouldn't recommend anyone selling stars or grains of sand. Uh, myself, Damn, I, I, that's I it. probably, yeah, sell jokes because they are unique okay so yeah they're unique are you are you good at jokes, though, good at jokes. can you tell us a joke uh, no <laughs> <laughs> i have to sell it you have to buy the nft first oh that's right that's right anyone wanting to bid for amit's jokes uh i mean amit jan's jokes uh please do get in touch i think i would also sell a sound um i've got like i've got one skill it's my party trick skill which is i can do this really loudly you see, yeah, I don't know if it. you can fully appreciate, but it's pretty loud, basically. Um, I don't know if the podcast will be able to represent it enough, but that would be what I sell because it's louder than anyone else's, as far as I know. And that would be good stuff. My value to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> podcast at wired.co.uk. What would you sell as a non fungible token if you could? Can you make sense of anything that we've spent the last 20 or so 
minutes talking about. And if, if you can, what do you think about it? Podcast at wired.co.uk. Time for a couple of your emails before we wrap up the show for this week. Natasha, Anna has been in touch. Yeah, so Anna says that she loves our podcast. I hope she's given us a really good review um, and that we've been keeping a company throughout the pandemic. But she, she wants to talk about Slack, which is something that we talked about last week on the podcast and about how um, people have been relying on it as basically the replacement for the office for an entire year. She says, that she's noticed a similar effect on her mental health as social media. She says that she's moved back to her parents' house during the the duration of the pandemic and she craves social interactions with colleagues who are closer to her age. But Slack has become an absolute nightmare in seeking validation. She says she's ashamed to admit how much she spent time watching the emoji reactions to anything she posts Why did Melinda give me a thumbs up instead of a raving parrot? Was my project not impactful enough? And she said that that there's also loads of other like non-work related office banter things like DIY, baking, fitness, you name it, which kind of makes her feel like she hasn't done a lot during lockdown. Now, I will immediately, Anna, make you feel better about this because the other day someone asked me, oh, over the last sort of year or so, what have you done that made you feel proud. And I said, I did a thousand piece puzzle called Cat Mania, which was made up of the faces of a thousand millions of cats. And it was horrific. And then they said, oh, did you do that during the lockdown? I, I did not. That was just before <laughs> that was just before lockdown. So I've done nothing of value in the entire year that we've been in lockdown. So um, you're not alone, Anna. Um, and yeah, if you, if you want to share any further parrot emojis, which is what she did in her email, do let us know. We support you in every possible way. Uh, just, just to check, Natasha, a few months ago, I think you said on the podcast that you were going to aim to get very good at solving Rubik's Cubes. How did oh, no. that go? I, I will, so I got really angry. Uh, it's not a good moment for me but I threw it away in like a fit of of anger I managed to do it so I I was following all those videos and I got the book from that sort of 12 year old child who who can teach you how to do a Rubik's Cube But but the key isn't to solve it the key is to solve it as quickly as you can without looking at the instructions now I got phase one which is read the book and solve it following the instructions which take about an hour and a half uh, I never got faster than that, and so I got a bit upset and I threw it away. So there is no no further Rubik's cube, and um, yeah, no glory. Never mind. Maybe uh, maybe more cat puzzles. Uh, 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 maybe necessary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a final email from Angelina who writes um, to say in response to our question from a few weeks ago, she's included some pictures of her puppy Milo. Not the uh, easiest thing to describe in an audio medium but um very cute so Uh, cute thank you very much all dog pictures very much appreciated they also wanted to say that they started following us all on twitter last week which is um very nice but also slightly creepy and we all look different (laughs) compared to what they had thought um i probably should think uh what you thought we look like (laughs) finally they say that they like the slightly new look show less stories more depth and i'm going to add to that more fun um because hopefully it is that's it for this week's show podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch we really do love hearing from you and please leave us a nice review on your podcast platform of choice we'll leave it there for this week have a good one we'll see you again next time Bye-bye. bye bye bye